7 to 12. Oh, that's not many. Oh, I've covered most of that already. <laughs> the heading of this is Eutychus raised from the dead at Troas. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man called Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. This passage is chosen today as a warning for any of you that may doze off in the next 20 minutes that you may well die. So be very careful not to fall asleep. This is why most churches are single story that were built a long time ago when people were um, just so that they can't fall out of any windows. If you fall out of that, you're quite safe. So um, knock yourself out. So, right, here we go. Now, I remember in my first church, um, well, church I was before we came here, um, being in one particular service, and it wasn't me, by the way, from what I'm about to say. It's not one of those friend of mine moments. But there was a guy, and he spoke for about 42 minutes. Such a long time. It's not that long. I could probably go on longer. But uh, he spoke, he preached a sermon, went on and on and on and on. In the end, I thought, I think I might just die of boredom because it's so coffee I remember saying to someone from the church another guy from the church oh, wasn't that long and he said to me this you think that's bad we once had a guy that preached here for 55 minutes and he said he just kept going and going and going until eventually one of the church elders stood up walked up to the microphone and went like that and whispered in his ear and said I think that's enough don't you which links neatly to our reading today. Uh, we're continuing our series, which is Love Your Church. And I hope you've been enjoying the Connect Group sessions. If you're yet to join a Connect Group, please don't leave it much longer because we're about halfway as of this week. And it's important for us to engage. The reason we're doing this is to rethink through how we can be the best uh, version, if you like, of ourselves, the most healthiest version of God's church here in Strawbridgeworth. But let me ask you a question. Do you love your church? That's the title of the book, the title of our course, Do You Love Your Church? Sawbridgeworth Evangelical Congregational Church not only has a long name, has a long history. It's been here since 1806 or thereabouts, in someone's barn and then a building here that was knocked down after 50 years and then 150 or 60 years ago, they built this building which is standing now. Generations have come and gone in the life of this particular part of God's family. And over those generations, men, women, and children have served our God, following Jesus in a spirit-filled, passionate way. And they have each, in turn, loved this church. They have loved what it stands for and what it does, and they have loved each other, and they have served Jesus wholeheartedly until the end of their lives or until God calls them to go somewhere else. Do we love this church? Do you love the people that exist in this church with you? Do you love your brothers and sisters? God has, in his sovereignty, placed you in this church for a reason. It is not by accident, but by design. And if God has placed you in this church, do you love it? 
And do people know you love it? Is it obvious that you love it? Is it obvious that you love what this church stands for, what it believes and has stood for for over 200 years? Is it obvious to each other that you love them? Or is it not? And these are key, important things. Can the same be said for us? Coming to Acts 20, which Barry very kindly just read to us, even though he did have minutes to think about it. Um, Acts chapter 20, verses 7 to 12. And if you'd like to open up, um, I will read it just a second time, just because I'm not sort of going to go verse by verse like I normally do. So on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. While he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down and threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. I do think it's the strangest story to include in a book about how to be a healthy church that I've ever come across. In fact, uh, if you've been a Christian or anywhere near Christian leadership, you will know that there are millions of books about how to have a growing, healthy church. Uh, At one point, it was a purpose-driven church back in the 90s, and now there are literally millions of the things. You can't move a Christian bookshop, if there are such a thing anymore, or a Christian event without someone producing a booklet that says how to grow your church in 10 easy steps. Easy as that. It's not as easy as that. It takes hard work and sacrifice and love for each other but not one of those books I'm willing to bet your houses um, mentions Acts chapter 20 verses 7 to 10 as an example of how to do it well I'm willing to bet not one of those books will say anywhere in them if you want a good Sunday gathering follow what they did in the city of Tros and Eutychus when he fell out the window and died I'm willing to bet not one person has ever used that as a positive example of how to do church Well, well, Tony Morita has, which is really good. You see, we live in a culture that has become less Christian. We talked about this at our Connect Group yesterday. We live in a culture that's becoming not less Christian, but more resistant to evangelical Christianity particularly, but Christianity as a whole. I was really saddened to see the the article by Chris Martin, the lead singer of, um, he said you too then, uh, Coldplay. And he, uh, on, on the Howard Stern show in America, made a point about how he's still recovering from the scars of his evangelical Christian upbringing. Make no mistake, my friends, the Christianity the world hates is the one that we practice in this church, which, by the way, is biblical Christianity. The Christianity the world loves is a more liberal version that leaves out things like heaven and hell and forgiveness and repentance and sacrifice and serving and doing away with the world and dying to self. The world doesn't want to hear any of that. The word sin is the word they don't want to hear. And so a more liberalized Christianity that talks of love and equality and everyone is equal no matter what lifestyle you choose. It's all good. Don't you dare call any of it a sin. That's the kind of Christianity our world loves. And make no mistake, evangelical Christianity is slowly but surely entering the crosshairs of society. We are the ones who are considered bigots and racists and homophobes and transphobes and all those kinds of things. But we are the ones who often will give our lives serving the poor and the broken. And so our culture has changed around us. That's by way of context. And the church has had to think about how it does church 
in a world that no longer really wants it to be the main focus of the week. Even our own lives are full of activities that are vying for our time. Voices that are desperately saying, don't go to church, do this instead. Don't go to connect group, do this instead. Don't do mission, go over here, focus on this. Everything pulls us away from this gathering together, even though God calls us to be one. And Christ died for this meeting to happen. And so the church over the last 30 years has had to wrestle with how it does church. We've had to ask questions like, what's it like for a non-Christian to walk through our doors? How do we make sure we don't put them off within the first 10 minutes? How do we make sure that we grow as one people, but don't come across outdated and passionless? Because make no mistake, when a non-Christian or a returning Christian walks into a church that has no passion in it and has no fire in its belly, they walk out because they say, there's nothing there. They're outdated. And there's nothing to them. And so the church had to wrestle with that. We've had to do things differently because it matters the first impressions people have when they come on a Sunday morning. It matters a lot. I remember a story a long time ago uh, when I was about 12 years old. I'd not long been a Christian and I understood that it was important to bring my friends to church. I went to a bit of a rough secondary school, but I had at least one friend, Dean Gray. He's a nice guy. Me and him got on very well. And, uh, and so I plucked up the courage. I think it took me about six months to invite him to church. And I thought, <clears throat> okay, so I said, would you like to, um, you know, come to church on Sunday? And bless him, he must have had some sort of Christian background. And he said, yes, much to my surprise. But it was the most horrendous service I've ever had the misfortune of going to myself. Because for some reason, on that particular Sunday, uh, my old church, which I won't name, decided to invite a monk to take the service. And as a 12-year-old boy, you don't get why that's a thing. Not only was he a monk, he was a thousand years old, or so it seemed. And to make matters worse, he was dressed in a blue robe. Not just was he wearing a robe, it was blue. Why blue? It's black or grey. That's the colour monks wear, surely. Everyone knows that. And to make matters worse, he was as boring as they have ever been. And my friend Dean Gray never came back. So it does matter what we do on a Sunday. We have to ask, are we contemporary? Are we of our time? We can't be back in the past. Anyway, so coming back to our passage. And so, by way of context, the church in truth, as uh, Barry read to us, uh, hasn't had that conversation, hasn't had to worry about what they look like on a Sunday morning. And in fact, everything that this church did in Acts chapter 20 completely goes against contemporary wisdom of what makes a good Sunday morning service or Sunday evening. Let me tell you some of the things they did wrong, first of all, in their gathering as Christians. They ate first. Rule 101, you don't feed people and then talk at them because they have an afternoon nap as you speak. You, you make starve them as you speak and then with a promise of food afterwards. That's obviously what you do. You don't feed them and then talk to them because they always would doze off. It was a Sunday night. Sunday nights are a terrible time for meetings, so I'm told regularly. Oh, you can't have it on Sunday nights. Work tomorrow. I can't come out on Sunday. It's tired. I'm tired. I don't want to go out on Sunday night. But they went right into 12 o'clock. What a ridiculous time. If they'd said to me, we're going to be thinking of a late night, late afternoon to 12 o'clock, I'd say, stupid. What a ridiculous idea. No one will stay till the end, and no one will come. So that's another thing. It was too long. It went on and on. You all laughed at that bit. On and on and on and on. And you just think, stop going on. And you can tell when a meeting is going on too long because people start shuffling and they wonder where the clock is. And they think, or, or they sneakily get their phone out to check how long, much long, how long you've been talking for, how much long they've got to endure it before they can go home. Another thing you did was have bad lighting. We know a little bit about that. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, but bad lighting, that doesn't help you stay awake, does it? Poor ventilation. 
as well. A ridiculous thing, that is. And it wasn't properly risk assessed. And the bloke speaking from the front was a boring speaker. Now, Paul the Apostle surely wasn't dull. But let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. This is what the Corinthians says. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. In chapter 11, verse 6, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. The Corinthians loved their polished speakers. Paul was neither. He was regular, actually. How good. That makes the rest of us feel quite good about ourselves. So he wasn't even a good communicator. The question isn't, how did Eutychus fall asleep? The real question is, how did anyone stay awake, frankly? The real question, then, is this. Why is this story in the book of Acts? Is it just because Paul's on his way to Miletus and it's just his itinerary and it's slightly amusing? Is it there so that preachers get a hard time and everyone secretly smirks when this is read out because they think, don't go on too long because you'll kill people. It's dangerous if you talk for too long. Is there a reason why it's there? I believe there is. I believe this story is in our Bibles because it shows something about the heart of the early church. Things were not polished in the first century but there was something they had that we don't have. The format of the meeting isn't what we're to really focus on, but the heart of the believers who attended it. They had three things that we often don't have as modern-day Christians. The first is passion, and then power, and then priority. Do you see, the early church was born into conflict. They were born into conflict, and they needed each other. They understood that they were one in Christ. You see, we exist in comfort. And it's actually harder to be a Christian in comfort than it is in conflict in terms of deep spirituality. So they had a hunger for being with each other. Verse 7, the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And they stayed in that place all afternoon and all evening, well into the next day. There was an understanding in the early church that they were called not just to believe in Christ, but they had a call to belong to each other. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, what do we read? Not they met once a week, but they met daily in each other's homes. They had a passion to be with each other and to worship God as one community. I remember being 11 years old when I just literally just become a Christian. And I remember saying to my friend uh, after one Sunday morning service, I said to her, isn't it weird to think that this will be our church until the day we die? I know that's naive because I've moved around because of this, my job, and other things. But in my mind, it was as simple as, this is where I found Christ. This is my church family, and I will be here to the day I die. I wonder, I thought it was, and actually I reflect on that, and I think it's a simplistic way of seeing church. But I think it was good in its own way. I wonder, are we passionate about what we do here on a Sunday morning? Do we understand that calling to be the body of Christ? Do we come on a Sunday to hear God's word preached and then discussed in our second half? Do we consider what we hear and apply it? Do we know that when we enter that, those doors, we all have the same job to encourage everybody else? That we must watch our behavior on a Sunday morning. We must watch our mannerisms, our hands, our facial expressions in case we cause anyone to stumble in their faith. Second thing they had was power. It's easy to laugh at this story and say, that poor man died of boredom. But he didn't actually. He listened until he dropped. That's actually what happened. But it's so easy to miss his return from death. It says something special about the early church when a resurrection of a dead man is almost a footnote in a story. 
Have we lost the confidence, actually, in the power of God as Christians? Do we expect that our prayers will be effective? Is there an expectation that God will move, or has that expectation been replaced by neat explanations when things don't happen? Has God changed since the first century? No. Does God want to move in power and majesty amongst his people? Yes, he does. So what's different? Have we just given ourselves a Christianity that doesn't expect the miraculous because it's hard to explain when it doesn't happen? The first century expected God to move and they prayed for him and fasted for him to move as well. And then the third thing they had was priority. How long this meeting was, it was too long, far too long. How many times have I looked at the clock in this talk thinking I must be done around quarter two? But they didn't worry about any of that. They just talked and they worshipped and they carried on and they carried on. They even carried on after he was dead and risen from the death, dead. They went back upstairs and carried on eating and carried on speaking. They didn't mind how long it was because God's word and the corporate gathering of God's people was their top priority. I read this quote this week, which I think is relevant. It said, we can't decide whether or not we live or die. That happens anyway. We can't decide whether or not we live or die. We can only decide what we will die for. You can't decide whether or not church is important. But you can decide the attitude that you have when you enter the building. Those who, um, that, that, whose call have we decided to follow as Christians? The world's and all of its priorities or the king's? The king calls us to be believers, but he calls us to be a people, corporate, worshipping together. The world commends individuality, but God calls us to, for community. And which voice are we going to listen to going forward in this church? Let's just take a moment before, um, before we finish with a, a short prayer. But just take a moment, maybe shut your eyes. Think of all that's been said. There's so much in this course that is a challenge to all of us. And that challenge needs to wash over us this morning. Just think for a second. What might God be challenging you on or encouraging you on? What needs to change? And just thinking about those things. That's just, just a short prayer as we finish and grab a coffee. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, for every single bit of it. I thank you, Lord, that that gathering was so passionate, so wonderful. That, Lord, they just just all around you and Lord that you did wonderful things and Lord I'm just taken by the the thought that I had this week that sometimes when we leave too early we miss what you do at the end of a meeting and Lord those that may have said it's too long it's too dark it's too late would have missed resurrection happen from a dead man but may we never miss what you're doing in this church may we never Lord go home too early Father God may we always stay and see what you're doing and Lord rejoice and be comforted like their friends were in troughs Lord we thank you for this passage Father, I pray you would challenge us. Thank you for this course. Father God, I pray that you would just refine us and chip away the sharp edges. Lord, may we watch what we say, what we do, how we look, how we speak. May we prioritize all this Sunday gathering, our connect group, serving you. Lord, make us your people, Lord, not just so that we can have a nice time, but also that our town can be saved and reached with the good news of Jesus. Lord, it's all about, Lord, you and your gospel. It's all about your kingdom coming. And we pray that we will be your servants, Lord. And we commit all this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.